Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. You know, when you look at the things that have divided the church over the centuries, now I'm going to make some broad generalizations this morning, and I know that you could take exception to every statement that I make at the beginning here. Hopefully it'll stop there, but when you generalize about church history, uh, you, you can see some patterns theologically and historically when you look at controversy. In the earliest days of the church, the thing that seemed to divide the church more than any other doctrine at that time up till about the fourth century was the doctrine of God, that is theology. And then as you move into the councils, especially the second through the sixth councils, the fourth through the the fifth and sixth and seventh centuries, the doctrine that seemed to divide, and, and what happens then is that heresies are spawned and born of the, 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 the division. The doctrine was Christology, that is the doctrine of Christ. As you move into the Middle Ages, some would say that the church became divided over the doctrine of man and sin, that is anthropology, and I think the word for it's hamartology, doctrine of man, doctrine of sin. And then you come to the Reformation. So let me ask you a question. What was the doctrine that was most divisive that led to Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and the others breaking away from the Roman Catholic Church? The doctrine of salvation, soteriology. And then you move into the period when Baptists were born and Presbyterians and Methodists and all of those denominations. In the 17th and 18th centuries, the doctrine that was divisive was the doctrine of the church, the ecclesia, ecclesiology. When you move into the 19th century on the American frontier, especially, the doctrine seems to have been eschatology, the doctrine of end times. And you look at a lot of the new cults or even some spinoffs of denominations, one of the key issues was millennialism and establishing the kingdom of God on earth, or uh, is it pre-post? There wasn't an ah until the 20th century. And then when you come to the turn of the 20th century, what was it then? What was it that those of you that are about 80, 70, even remember controversy in Baptist churches about the doctrine of the, related to Pentecost, what? Holy Spirit, pneumatology. So I asked my students in class, when we come to this point, then what is the big divisive topic of the 21st century, late 20th and early 21st century and post-modernity? What is it that divides the church? What would you say it is? Well, there are a lot of them because in a postmodern world, everybody seems to have their own opinion about things. I think that it's doxology. Doxology. And it comes from the word doxa, which means glory. But when we talk about doxology, we're talking about what, folks? The doctrine of worship. Has that been divisive in churches in the 21st century? Absolutely. Has it split churches? Absolutely. There's really no need for that if we have a proper understanding of what worship is. 
Why do we have such controversy about it, and why are we going to spend about the next three months looking at worship? This is the first in a series of messages and worship services that deal with this issue of worship. I think it's because the controversy revolves around styles and expressions and patterns of worship when we gather to praise God. How do we do it? The controversy has to do with appealing to our individual likes, our peculiar preferences, and some of them are rather peculiar, our individual tastes. The controversy has to do with addressing our needs. How, how often have you heard this? Well, I, I stopped going to that church because they, didn't, they stopped feeding me. Or I go to this church because I like their style of worship. What serves our own best interests? Well, that's a product of postmodernity. It's a product of the world we live in, this self-focused, selfie world that we live in. I used to say, well, it's not that people are so selfish, they're just self-focused. But folks, it's because of selfishness. It's because we do not ask what pleases God. Many churches are more interested in being seeker-friendly. And by that I mean competing with the world out there to bring people in and to swell their ranks and to try to hold on to them and actually competing with a world out there in order to keep people in here. It forgets that our purpose, and I know that you know this, I know I'm preaching not only to the choir. Where are you, choir? Oh, you're out there, yeah. I know I'm not preaching just to the choir, but I think that we need to think about this to give it great thought. It's not about pleasing God. It's not about following the leadership of His Holy Spirit. It's not about what Joe Kreider talks about being guided through worship by His Word. If you look at the liturgy this morning, everything in the liturgy has been guided by the Word of God. And there's a reason for that. It forgets the meaning of worship. Well, I'm not going to give you, well, I will give you a Webster definition. It is to express reverence and adoration for God. You see, that is, sounds so much in contrast to what I was just talking about. You know, John Calvin, when he spoke about worship, it wasn't about style, it wasn't about expression, it wasn't about pleasing us. He said, men will never worship God with a sincere heart, with a genuine heart, without being disingenuous, disingenuous or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. We are here this morning because of the mercy of God. He has spared us, and we are here because of the grace of God. We're here this morning because as we slept last night, he guarded over us and watched us and he helped us draw every unconscious breath and we are here because he called us here to meet him. Wow. It ignores the fact that it's not the seekers that are on the street that we should be so concerned about. I know that we have a responsibility to reach the lost with the gospel, but it isn't those seekers that are to be pleased. We forget the fact that it, we, we, forget for, we forget who the seeker is that is to be pleased. What did Jesus say to the Samaritan woman? But an hour is coming, and it, and it even is now, he said, 
when true worshipers will worship the Father in what? Spirit and truth. And then what did he say? He said, for such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Friends, who is the seeker? The seeker is not the person who walks into the church. And I know how we mean that. But the real seeker is God. The real seeker is the hound of heaven who pursues the lost soul and knows the lost soul before the lost soul ever comes into his sanctuary. He is the seeker, and he is the one that we need to please. You know, when you look at the background of true worship, where would you go? Well, I think that we could go right back to the very beginning of Scripture, and that's what we're doing this morning in Genesis 5. In the beginning, well, not chapter 1, but when you come to chapter 3, and we infer from this what true worship was. Adam and, Eve, Adam and Eve, it doesn't say that they walked in the garden, but it's in, we, we infer from this passage that it is, where God cared for their needs. And I know that he called Adam and Eve to be stewards of his creation, which suggests that they were to cultivate and to develop and to tend his garden. But the fact of the matter is God gave that garden to them as a gift and he provided and cared for all of their needs. And it says in Genesis 3, after they had sinned, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, which suggests this, that they before then had walked with God. Can you imagine that? Walking with God in the cool of the day, and now they know they cannot do that any longer. You, this was pure worship. Pure worship was to walk each moment with God and to depend on Him fully, not themselves. And then sin broke that communion of worship, didn't it? And they were then expelled from the garden, and one of the punishments was they would not only tend the garden, but they would toil laboriously to cultivate the land. God was still present. He still sought reconciliation with them. And he wanted to meet their needs. But what happened is then, not just Adam and Eve, but their descendants then became self-focused, not focused on God. They became obsessed with the struggle to provide daily needs and to survive. The first act of formal worship that I can find in Scripture then is a little after that in the next chapter. And that is when the two brothers, Cain and Abel, then offer their offerings that is the first act of formal worship, I think. At the altar, Abel offered his in what? In faith, relying on God. And God, we find out later in the New Testament, God accounted that for righteousness, his faith. Not just in Romans. We find it also in the account of Abel's life a little bit later, not just Romans 1. Cain, on the other hand, we don't know exactly what the source of his sin was, but we know that he had a sinful attitude. He had a bad attitude. He seemed to be self-serving and proud, and he was indignant that God did not find favor with his offering. And God warned him. He said, sin is crouching at your door. Be careful. Well, sin sprung, and the trap, Cain fell into it. It led to his jealousy and, of course, the murder of his brother. And there was a break in worship then. Cain then departed. You see, if, if worship is walking with God, Cain did just the opposite. He became a vagabond. He walked the face of this earth as a kind of vagrant. 
He wandered from God. It says in Genesis, the fourth chapter, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord. He departed from the presence of the Lord. He stopped walking with the Lord and settled in the land of Nod. And the word Nod means wandering. You see, he became a wanderer east of Eden. That is the opposite of genuine worship, wandering and drifting away from God. And Cain's uh, genealogy, his lineage, as far as we know it, did the same thing. For in chapter 4, verses 17 through, 20, 17 through 24, we find then Cain's lineage that apparently goes to the flood, and there is no mention of God in all of that genealogy. There is no worship, no one called on the name of the Lord. And in Jude, in the 11th verse, it describes this as the way of Cain. The way of Cain is wandering from the Lord and not worshiping him. So when do we have restoration of worship? We come to Seth, that is... Seth's genealogy. Who was Adam's third son? He had Cain and then Abel and then Seth. And Adam was 130 years old when he was born. And we have nine generations that are listed at the end of chapter 4 and through chapter 5 up to the flood. And we have intermittent glimpses of God's glory and godly devotion. We have it in Seth's family to begin with. And then we find it later in Enoch on whom we focus today. And then finally with Noah, the last of those generations. And we find worship manifested in two ways in the following genealogy, not only of Seth, but also then in the Old Testament. Formal worship was liturgical. It was at the altar. In Genesis, the fourth chapter, just before the passage that we're going to read in a moment, in verse number 25, it says, Then in the days of Seth, after, after he had Enosh, his son, after he was born, so apparently in that day of Seth's family, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. It began with Seth's family in Enosh's time. Adam at that time, interesting, was 235 years old. And we find the patriarchs doing the same thing. This formal worship demonstrated liturgically at the altar by Abram. And then later, Isaac. So what does Abram do in, in, in Genesis after the uh, 13th chapter? After he's called and then he goes to Canaan. The first thing he does after he gets into Canaan is he goes to Bethel and he builds an altar there. And he calls upon the name of the Lord, just as it says in Genesis 4th chapter. Isaac did the same thing at Beersheba. That is formal liturgical worship, and there's a place for it. We do it this morning at the altar of God. But there's also relational worship, and that is the walking with God. We have a couple of pre-flood examples of that in early Genesis and uh, in this genealogy. We have Enoch who walked with God, and then later in Genesis, the fifth chapter, it begins the story of Noah, and he walked with God. The patriarchs walked before God. And I take that as very much the same thing. Abram followed God to Canaan, but he did, the, he did that before he ever had liturgical worship at the altar. You see, he was walking with God and following him relationally before he ever built the altar at, at, uh, at Bethel. And God confirmed this worshipful devotion of following him. In Genesis, the 17th chapter then, he formalizes this in a relational covenant. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram, and he said to him, I am the God Almighty. Walk, walk before me, and be blameless. 
that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. So you see, this is that relational worship, walking to God in covenant. Jacob gives this testimony then when he speaks to his sons, and he gives a blessing to Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. He confirms that you see his grandfather and his father and even he have done this very thing. They have had a worshipful relationship with God by walking before him. It says in Genesis the 48th chapter, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The the God who has been my shepherd. What, What idea do you get of the shepherd? You see, he has been walking with the shepherd. He has been following the shepherd. He has been the shepherd all the days of my life. The angel, the messenger, God, who has redeemed me from all harm, may he bless these boys. So we get this idea there's more in the Old Testament than just the liturgical altar worship. There's something behind it. So as we, as we deal with worship over the next three months, one thing I want us constantly to remember, and we will go back to it frequently, is this. Worship is more than a liturgical act. It's, worse, it's more than, it is that, but it's more than just coming together at a specific place and time. It's walking with God. It's not only walking with God. Worship begins with embracing, accepting God's invitation. Come, walk with me. Would you stand together for the reading of God's word this morning? Genesis, the fifth chapter, it's a short passage. So let me give everybody a chance to stand up before you sit down, okay? Genesis 5, beginning in verse number 21. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah. And he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God. And he was not, for God took him. The word of the Lord. Would you please be seated? We do not know if all of Seth's genealogy had a worshipful relationship with God. We might infer that, but I think that might be a little askew. You see, God is not mentioned in Seth's genealogy after chapter 4 until we come to Enoch when he was 65 years old. 425 years had elapsed since Enoch had been born since they had begun to call upon the name of the Lord. Uh, And it's interesting, you know, we don't stop and think about this often, but, you know, Adam was still alive. Not only Adam was alive, Seth was still alive. As a matter of fact, when you look at the primary names of the genealogy of Adam through Seth, all the way down to then Enoch and Methuselah, they are all alive then. But we have no evidence that they continued to call upon the name of the Lord. They may have. What we do know is this, when we come to chapter 6, And it is apparently not just Cain's genealogy, but they all are wicked. The wickedness of all the people on the earth was great. The intents of their hearts were evil continuously, the scripture tells us, and violence filled the earth. All humankind was corrupt. I think this may suggest that Enoch is an exception in that genealogy. He may not have been. He he may have been raised to believe in the Lord and to follow him, and he may have drifted for the first 65 years. We don't know. What we do know is this, that Enoch experienced a spiritual awakening. He experienced a conversion. 
He broke a pattern that you see in the scripture up to this point in chapter 5. For you see, it says that Adam lived so long, so many years, and then he fathered then Seth, and then he lived so many more years and he died. And that same pattern is given for every one of those patriarchs. And then what does it say? Enoch comes along and he breaks the pattern of living, fathering, and living unto death. And when you see this passage, it says, he lived 65 years, he fathered a son, and then it said, and then he, what does it say? Walked with God. And then he lived another 300 years. When this transformation occurred, when he had this conversion experience, when was it? That's rather significant. It happened at the birth of his son. You say, first Enoch became the father of Methuselah, and then that word then is, in, is inserted. Now, the word then is not in Hebrew. It's not a separate word there, but it's built into the verb. For you see, this is a sequential, imperfect Hebrew verb. What it means is it must be put in the sequence of what has preceded and before that which follows. In other words, you see, he had lived, and then he had fathered, and it is after the birth of Methuselah then, that he then begins to walk with God. There came a point where he became aware of God's presence and God's call to walk with him. Just like as earlier in Seth's generation, there came a point in the life of Seth after the birth of his son Enosh. Same idea there. There's something about the birth of a child, and I don't know if that's the reason that Enoch did it, but there's something about the birth of a child that causes us to look around at the world and say, do I want my child to grow up like that? Enoch looks around, and the world is filled with wickedness, I think, and he says, isn't there something better? We look at the world around us today. Abigail. Other children born in this fellowship over the past few months, the coming children of the Cones. And you look around at this world filled with its corruption, its immorality. Everybody has their own truth. We will do our own thing. And we ask this question, do I want to raise my child like that? Isn't there something better? It may have been that. There's an awesome responsibility for raising children in a wicked and immoral world. I think that it has something else to do with God. I'm going to infer this from the passage, but I believe that God initiated it. We are saved by God's grace. We know this today, not because we pursue Him, but because all along He has been pursuing us. You see, I believe that God had already chosen Enoch to accomplish His purpose. He had a special purpose for Enoch, and we find it later in the New Testament. And I believe that he made Enoch aware of his need to respond to him and to his invitation. We certainly know this is the case with Noah. Did God have a special purpose for Noah? Absolutely. So the two men that walk with God in this genealogy, I believe they walk with God because God initiated it, not they. You infer that from the passage. It's not explicit. Enoch exemplified true worship. He rediscovered God's purposes for worship, I think. The word halak, the, the verb there, he was walking. He was walking with God. It's actually an imperfect. He, 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 then he was walking. It was continuous. The same verb was used of God in the garden. 
In chapter 3, when it says that they heard God walking, he was holocking in the garden. And that verb is not used again in the book of Genesis until we come to this passage where it speaks about Enoch. So there is this idea, this context of worship. It reveals two of God's purposes for worship, genuine and true worship. Two of God's purposes that he rediscovers are first intimacy and fellowship, knowing God and his ways. Worship for us ought to be about that. It ought to be about knowing God, about knowing his ways. And we know his ways that come through his word that is revealed through his written word and then is illumined by his Holy Spirit as we come together in the congregation and he reveals himself to us more fully. It's also about obedience. He discovered obedience. He followed God. And it's about, worship is about following God in the right way, the prosperous paths of life. Do not depart to the right or to the left, he told Moses. Do not depart to the right or to the left from the word that has been given you by Moses, Joshua said. And the reason for that is so that you might prosper, so that God might bless you. That's, not a, that, that's the original prosperity gospel. It is obey God because what God has told you to do and not to do is what is best for you. You see, he followed God, secondly. First of all, he rediscovers the purposes of worship. Secondly, in this passage, we see that he followed God, and that is true worship, regularly and faithfully. He followed him all the time to the end. He hollocked God all the time, continuously. He was walking from that point on. He was 65. He was taken by God at the age 365 for 300 years. He regularly, all the time, day in, day out, season in, season out, he walked with God. That is worship. Not only regularly, but faithfully. In addition to his being obedient in terms of being faithful, he walked by faith. That's what I mean by faithful worship. You know, Hebrews 11th chapter talks about Enoch. It gives us a summary. I said we'd come to that later in the New Testament. Here it is. It says, by what did, faith, did Enoch, by, by what was Enoch taken up? Hebrews 11th chapter is the what chapter of Scripture. It's about what? It's about faith, about those who faithfully follow. And it begins here with Enoch. And it says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he could, would not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken... Before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now, why is that? Because as we talk about worship over the next three months, we need to remember this. Worship is a faith venture. Worship and our relationship with God is about our following him and trusting him and obeying him in faith. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, goes on to say, without faith, it is impossible to please him. And it is impossible for anyone to come to God because we need to believe that he is faith and we need to believe that he is the one who is a rewarder for those who do what? Who seek him. Now, there's the, pro the proper context for seekers. We come seeking him because he first sought us and we do it in faith. So first of all, we see that Enoch rediscovered the purposes of God for worship and that's intimacy and obedience. Secondly, we see that he followed God regularly and faithfully. 
He walked by faith and not by sight. And then finally, we see that he fulfilled God's appointed mission for him. When God calls us to worship, when God gathers us as the body of believers, he brings each one of us into this body with gifts. If you join this fellowship, Gamble Street Baptist Church, you come with the gifts of God to this fellowship that he will use in this fellowship and beyond to accomplish his kingdom purpose. Amen? Amen? And when you do, he has a purpose for you. He has a purpose for each one of you as a follower of Christ. And God, recognized, God I think, informed uh, Enoch of what his purpose was for him. And he took obedient action. For when we look at Jude, that short one-chapter book in the New Testament, we see that Jude became God's first prophet. In the seventh generation from Adam, he prophesied. And in that, he did a couple of things. First of all, he predicted about the second coming. Wow. Now, we don't have his prophecy in the Old Testament, but we have it accounted for in the New Testament. He prophesied in the second coming that the Lord would come and he would bring with him myriads of saints. But there's another purpose in this. As he proclaims this, he also is speaking to his own generation because he said this, when the Lord comes, he's going to execute judgment upon all. And he will convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly manner, and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Does that sound like a prophetic message for Enoch's day? Amen. It's also a prophetic message for today. Enoch was God's first prophet in the Old Testament. And God had called him to this. He had a purpose, and he responded to it. So what are some of the applications that we can make for this message? I would say there's some principles that we need to draw from it. First of all, as we walk through this uh, series on worship, I would remind us that God invites you to walk with him. And it, 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 it has priority over liturgical worship. Now, I don't mean by that, oh, well, we can just worship any, in, anywhere so we don't need to come to church. No, that's not what this means. No. But... Our walking with God takes priority over everything else. Oh man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? You know, you know this. It's not thousands of sacrifices. It's not the blood of bulls and goats, although that was built into the law and he expected it to happen. But it's not the offering at the altar that matters if in fact the life that brings the offering is corrupt. He said what must happen first is you must relationally worship he says, what is required of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and okay, you know it, to do what? Walk humbly with your God. Liturgical worship that we do here must be preceded by our walking with God. The mark of true discipleship is to do what with Jesus? To follow him. If anyone serves me, Jesus said, he must follow me. He must walk with me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, then the Father will honor him. You cannot serve the Lord without walking with him. So first of all, God invites you and he invites me to walk with him. That is the basic beginning of worship. Secondly, God promises to walk with us. Draw near to God, James tells us, and God will do what? He will draw near to you. Thirdly, I would say that walking with God brings eternal life. John, the eighth chapter, Jesus proclaimed to them, this is after the incident with the adulterous woman, he spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, whoever walks with me, will not walk in darkness, but he will have the light of life. And that's a euphemism for eternal life. 
Fourthly, walking with God brings fellowship and forgiveness. And of course, we turn to 1 John for that. You see, if we say in this body at Gamble Street Baptist Church that, that we have fellowship with him, but if we are walking in darkness, either as a church or as individuals, then we're liars. We don't have the truth in us. He goes on to say, but if we walk in the light, that is in the light of Christ, and he is in the light, if we're in the light, then we have fellowship one with another. Not only fellowship with one another, we also have fellowship with him. And then also the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Walking with God then brings fellowship and forgiveness. Walking with God, number five, brings obedience. When we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on the way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still. And with all who will what? trust and obey. There's moral accountability when we walk with God. Ephesians 4 and 5, we're doing the series in Ephesians on Sunday night. We're going to come to this this week, the next week. We don't have worship this evening, worship service, worship service, worship service. <laughs> Wherever you are, you're worshiping, you're walking with God, okay? You almost caught me, I know. We don't have a worship service this evening, but next week we're going to be looking at Ephesians 4 and then 5, and it talks about walking no longer as the children of the world. We don't walk any longer in darkness, but we walk in the light of the, the Lord, you see, because we're children of the light. Awake, sleeper, it says, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. Therefore, be careful that you walk not as unwise persons, but wise persons. There's moral accountability when we walk with God. Obedience and sincerity, we should approach him with a conscience that is clean, and that requires confession, which we have done this morning. It's built into our liturgy, scripture-guided worship. Hebrews 10 says, let us continue to come near. He invites us, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. But how do we draw near? You see, if we have worshipful attitudes, we come near with sincere hearts, with full assurance that faith provides. There's the faith again, because our hearts have been sprinkled clean from a guilty conscience. We have confessed our sin. Obedience requires good works. We've already covered this in Ephesians a couple of weeks ago. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we would walk in them. It requires obedience so that as a body of Christ, we fulfill the calling that he's given to us. He gave Enoch a calling to be a prophet. He gives us a calling. And the first part of that calling as a body of Christ is that we are unified in the spirit to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. So as we worship together as a body of Christ, we come with humility and gentleness and patience and tolerance and love for one another. Paul tells the Ephesians that it means that we are diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's obedience. In this obedience, we're constant in our spiritual communion. Enoch didn't walk occasionally with God. It says that he walked 300 years to the very end. And it's interesting. He said he walked, he didn't run. Wow. He may not have made great leaps and bounds, but he did what? Consistently. Day by day, he walked step by step with the Lord. We may not soar as eagles. We may not run as fast as we used to, you young guys. But we can always do what? We can always walk with the Lord.
And when we stumble, he picks us up, he dusts us off. When we confess our sin, he forgives us, and he walks with us regardless. There's some true results of true worship and walking with God. Let me give you three. Walking with God relieves anxiety and burdens. Jesus said, come to me, all ye who are what? Weary and heavy laden, and I will do what? I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For You see, I'm gentle, and I am lowly. I am humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burdens light. I am weak, but thou art strong. Jesus, keep me from all wrong. I'll be satisfied as long as I walk. Let me walk close to thee. Just a closer walk with thee. Grant it, Jesus, is my plea. Daily walking close to thee, let it be, dear Lord, let it be. Worship begins with walking with Jesus, and it relieves the anxieties and stresses of life that we cannot handle outside the garden. Worship also validates our witness, and it makes our service genuine. We talk about witnessing for God. If we're going to go out and witness for God, and we talk the talk, we better what? Walk the walk. You see, this is one of the problems with the church today out in the world. There are too many people that talk about God, and they don't know Him. Oh, they may have made a profession of faith. They may, in fact, be in the kingdom. They may, in fact, genuinely have been saved, but they haven't grown a, smid grown a smidgen since they came to know the Lord. They don't know the Lord in His ways, and yet they go out and they profess to. And the world looks at that kind of soul, and they see a disingenuity about it. It's not honest. If we're going to witness for the Lord, folks, it begins with worship. It begins with a worshipful devotional walk with God. What did Jesus say to Satan? When Satan tempted him, if you just bow down before me, look at all the kingdoms of the world and I will give them to you. Just bow down and worship me. It's interesting the sequence of what Jesus said. He quoted the Old Testament. He said, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and what? Serve him only. Look at the sequence, folks. We cannot serve him properly unless we have what? First worshiped him, and to worship him is to walk with him. And then thirdly, I think something else that worship does is it prepares us for eternity. This worshipful walking with God day by day transforms us spiritually and morally, and we have a deeper capacity, hear this, a deeper capacity to enjoy God. Go back to the Westminster Catechism. What's the purpose of man? It is to what? It's to glorify him and to what? Enjoy him forever. How do we enjoy God forever? We learn to do it here. You see, we're trained in the crucible of ministry and in his church, in the body of Christ, to learn more about him. So that when we get to heaven, Revelation 22, when we get to heaven, and we serve him, we know how to do it. If we walk with God here, he someday will take us. We'll die, unlike Enoch. He will take us, and we will be with him. When my feeble life is o'er, time for me will be no more. Guide me gently, safely o'er, to thy kingdom shore, to thy shore, just a closer walk with thee. Granite Jesus is my plea daily. 
walking close to thee. Let it be, dear Lord, let it be. Let me close with this. I think worship is more than some things. Worship is clearly what we do when we get gathered together, and we should do that. But it's part of our worship. Worship is more than an activity when we meet on certain occasions. Worship is more than a corporate experience. It's important for it to be corporate, but it is also individual. It's more than a corporate experience when we come together. Worship is more than isolated or even connected liturgical acts. If you look at the bulletin here, take a moment and look at it. It's scripture guided, and in that we have the gathering, and in the gathering we did what? We made confession and we made adoration. And then what did we do? We came to the thanksgiving. We not only gave thanks, we gave. And we offered spiritual sacrifices, and the choir gave their thanksgiving offering to God. And then we come to the proclamation of the word, the teaching, or the preaching of the word. And then we come to the last part, the benediction. It's a good word. We go forth with the good word of God. Those are liturgical acts that were woven together, scripture guided by our worship leader. Jesus Christ, through our other worship leader, Ben Caston. Well, folks, those are important acts that we do together, but worship is more than just weaving together things in a liturgy. Worship is more than a prelude to preaching. Worship didn't happen before I got in this pulpit, and then that was the first part, and then we have the preaching. My preaching this morning is a worshipful act. I hope it's a worshipful act with you as you hear the Word of God and it, and it makes some kind of transforming effect in you. It's a worshipful act for me. It's my sacrifice to God today that I lay on the altar for Him. It's all worship from beginning to end. Worship is more than preparation from service. We do not enter to worship and depart to serve. We enter to serve Him, and that is worship. We depart to worship Him by serving Him. You see, they're woven together. Worship is more than what we do. Worship is more than who we are. Worship is more than being in a given place. Worship is all we are and all we do as we walk with God in relationship with Him. Look at the disciples' cross. We talk about a church doing what? This way. We worship Him vertically. We're rooted in the Word and discipleship and in study. We then do what? We reach out to others and we have fellowship and we bear one another's burdens. Well, folks, that disciples' cross comes from what? Not only the liturgical act of worship, but it comes from worshipfully following God moment by moment. Worship is at the center of everything that we do if we're walking with God. It energizes all we do. So our call to worship should be this. Worship focuses not on ourselves and our needs. It, it focuses on the seeker, God, and what pleases Him. Worship begins not with us, but with God. When we talk about an invocation, it's not calling God into our presence. It's responding to God's call to come into His presence. You see, He is the one that initiates worship. He is the seeker. Worship is all of who we are and all of what we do in relationship with God every moment of every day. And I don't mean to water down the significance of coming together in our worship service. It is an hour and 13 minutes, 14 minutes so far? Is it only an hour, an hour and a half on Sunday morning? We know it's not. We ought to be preparing as we come for this high point of the week to offer our spiritual sacrifices to God. 
We ought to be preparing for that all week long. And we come, yes, our batteries are recharged, but it's not about our batteries being recharged. It's about our offering our spiritual sacrifices to God. And then we go forth from there and serve the rest of the week and worship Him. You see, it's more than just a time that we meet. It's about following Him. It's about embracing and responding to God's invitation. Come, walk with me. Worship is a faith venture. Just like Enoch. By faith, Enoch was taken up. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. And we walk by faith, not by sight, trusting him every step of the way. This morning, if you've been watching out there or perhaps you're here, the word of God may have spoken to you in a significant way. It may be something about how God is calling you to deeper devotion and worshipful walk with him. It may be about starting that journey. Maybe you have not been walking in faith. Maybe you have been following the world and the world says, oh, you know, truth is what you want to make it to be. Eh, if you want to believe in God, that's okay for you, but it's not for me. The word of God says he is, and he rewards those who seek him. And the re reward is this. We're all sinners. And if we admit that we are a sinner and we repent of our sin, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us of all our sin. And if we believe in the name of Jesus Christ, his son, as our Lord and Savior, and we promise to follow him, he then prepares a place for us and gives us eternal life and fills us with his Holy Spirit. Maybe that is what God is calling you to do this morning for the first time, to walk in faith, to begin the journey, the pilgrimage of worship and following Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. What is God's pleasure with you this morning? Let us pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gambrel Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, to train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.